You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2 tonight. We'll begin reading in verse 8. Let's stand together. Actually, we'll begin, uh, let's read in verse 9, and we'll read through the end of the chapter here. Nehemiah chapter 2, it says in verse 9, Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it. It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. And we preached on those verses last week that any time you start to try to do something for God, you'll have opposition. It's just the way it works, and it starts immediately for Nehemiah as he comes into the land. Look look at verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned." And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I, as I, sorry, had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this that thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, for he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. It's a great passage, kind of an inspiring passage, really, when you think about it. We won't get to all of it tonight. We'll kind of split it up in half and focus more on 11 through 16 this evening. But I'm calling this tonight deliberate deliberating. Deliberate deliberating. And how it is important in God's work that we're deliberate about what we're doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. And I thank you for the passage. Pray that you would help me to convey it clearly and do justice to your your inspired word here. We're grateful uh, for the way that you speak to us. And pray that you would open our hearts and minds this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You've probably heard the phrase, anything worth doing is worth doing well. Have you heard that phrase before? Anything worth doing is worth doing well? I figured most of us have heard that. When I was in in high school, I I played football for my high school. And my freshman year in high school, I didn't play on the varsity team. I wasn't old enough or good enough to do that. But my freshman year, I played on a team that was mediocre at best. And we, I think we had a 500 record and, and our varsity team wasn't really all that great. And my impression as a freshman in high school of our team is that it wasn't really all that organized. Uh, the coach was a good coach, he was a good man, um, but he, he didn't really run a, if you'll know, understand what, I, what I'm saying, he didn't really run a tight ship. Uh, everyone loved him and everyone enjoyed playing, but... When you're not winning, that's not really nearly as enjoyable. He didn't really want to run a very tight ship. So I remember 
uh, my, between my freshman and sophomore year, we had a new coach come in. And this, he came in as the assistant coach or maybe the associate head coach. He was underneath the coach that we already had. But he came from a very large high school in Houston, Texas. And I grew up in Evanston, Wyoming. And so uh, anytime you have somebody from Texas come to Wyoming, first of all, you're thinking, What's, what did they do wrong? But second, you're thinking, this guy knows high school football if he used to coach at a big school in Texas. So he came in, and immediately, I remember the very first day of the two-a-day practices in summer, everything felt different. And he wasn't the head coach, but, but the head coach gave him a lot of room to kind of operate how he th- thought things should operate. And I remember the very first thing that, I, that he changed when he c- came into the program was he changed how we did warm-ups. And you say, well, that's kind of silly. Uh, why do you have to change how you do warm-ups? What, what's the big deal about warm-ups? Well, the way that we used to do warm-ups is everyone would kind of just stand kind of in a line or in a group, and, and you know, you do all the stretches, and, and some guys would take a long time, and some guys wouldn't take hardly any time at all. And warm-ups or stretches, they really didn't have any organization to them. They, you just kind of, you know, you just stretched as you needed to and did some warm-ups, and then you were done. Well, the very first day, the first thing that we started working on was how we're going to warm up, how we're going to do our stretches. And we all lined up in a certain number across the field, and there were three guys up at the front, three kind of leaders of the team, and they knew what stretches to do, and they would, they would call out a chant, and we would all respond. And every time they would say, if, for instance, if they would say Evanston, um, then we would all get in a ready stance, and then they would give us a, a, an instruction, and we as a group would all do it together. I know that sounds kind of weird, but from the very first day, as soon as he started to do that, you felt like things were a little bit different because he came in with a plan. And his motto, and I don't know that he verbalized it this way, but I know for sure that he believed it, was anything that you're going to do, if it's worth doing, let's do it well. Like, why would we go through all of this if we're not going to have good stretches and we're not going to have good warm-up exercises, if we're not going to really do it with purpose, let's not do it at all. But he said, but it's worth doing, so let's do it well. So we started that day, the very first day, I remember, we started, uh, everything that we did had a purpose. We were doing it for a reason. We were doing it uh, with organization, and we were doing it, we had a purpose to it. It felt deliberate. And that year, from my freshman year being a, a mediocre team, my sophomore year, the first year he came in, and he was a mastermind in offense, um, we went from mediocre, not make, making the playoffs. My sophomore year, we played in the state championship game. Really, not really all that many different players. The system was different because he was good at, at, at offense and and his, but really, it was about, about the fact that he was deliberate about everything we did. We didn't just go through the motions. They had a purpose. They had a reason. It's kind of like uh, in, in music, uh, if you're taking piano lessons, you, uh, you students here now, and you know, as your teachers make you go through the scales, and they make you do two octave scales, and then sometimes four octave scales, and they make you go through all the exercise, like hand in exercises, and all the piano nerds know what I'm talking about here. But they make you go through the exercises and you go up and down the keyboard. And in your mind you're thinking, this serves no purpose, I don't understand it. Until you start playing harder music and you see the same scales and the same things in the music that you're trying to play that you've been playing since you were young, doing those scales. And you start to realize, oh, there was a purpose to this. There was a purpose to the small things. And as soon as that coach came in and started giving us a purpose, even for the small things like the exercises or the warm-ups that we would do together suddenly everything felt more deliberate a couple of years after that um, when I graduated uh, probably has something to do with it the high school won the state championship after I was gone it says something about my effectiveness as a football player I think but you know it was no accident that coach Smith came in and changed the culture of that football team and he did it because he was deliberate. He didn't want, want to just go through the motions and think, well, you know, we're just doing warm-ups or we're just stretching. No, what we, we, there was a man that said, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And I, I see that in Nehemiah here. 
I see that in Nehemiah as a man, and he's doing something far more important than football. Far more important than sports. He gives us the picture of a man who believes that anything worth doing is worth doing well. He was not the kind of guy that would walk in and do something half-heartedly. He was doing the work of the Lord. He's rebuilding the wall. And in his mind, this was a task worthy of his very best. And at this point in the narrative, Nehemiah has made his way to Jerusalem. He's ready to begin the work. And, and we might think, if it was me or you, we might get there and be like, all right, man, I've been waiting months for this. It's been six, seven, eight months probably since he first heard about the condition of the walls. And now that he's here, he's probably just chomping at the bit to get started. I mean, it's probably, it's months, I imagine. And for six months, he's been just waiting for this. And I, I'm sure that he's imagined where he would begin and what he would do first. And, and now that he's here, now that he's in Jerusalem, we see this extremely consistent characteristic in Nehemiah of being willing to wait until the time is right. He doesn't just jump in. He's not impulsive. And this is where I start to think that a good word to describe Nehemiah is the word deliberate. He's deliberate. He has a reason for what he does. He's not just jumping in. He's not being impulsive. And as a matter of fact, if you look up the word, de the definition of deliberate, it means done consciously, done intentionally. It means fully considered, not impulsive. Some of us can be impulsive. Deliberate is the opposite of impulsive. It means done or acting in, in a careful and unhurried way. Way I would say most certainly that Nehemiah does things carefully. He does things in an unhurried way. If those definitions don't describe Nehemiah, I don't know what does. Deliberate in, is also, so it's, an, it's, it's a, a noun, but it's also one of those words that even though it's spelled the same way, it's pronounced differently, and it's a noun and a verb. The verb version of the word deliberate is pronounced deliberate deliberate and the definition of to deliberate as a definition of the verb is to engage in long and careful consideration we would certainly say that nehemiah is someone who engaged in long and careful consideration deliberate also means to consider a question carefully now i've known people i'll ask them a question and i i'm fully expecting them to start snoring before they answer because it's taking them so long to answer you ever met somebody like that? They take so long to answer a question. You're like, Are, did I, do I need to repeat this? And what they're doing is they're processing the question. They're taking their time before they answer. I'm pretty sure Nehemiah wasn't just deliberate, that he was also a man who would deliberate. I doubt Nehemiah made many decisions quickly. I remember as a kid, one of the things that, that uh, frustrated my dad more than just about anything is if I was being undecisive or indecisive about something. If I was taking too long to decide at a restaurant what I would order, I remember this especially when he would allow me at this grocery store to pick out a candy bar. Anybody ever go through this as a kid? Now, is there anything more important to a child than candy? Well, I don't know. But I remember my dad would say, okay, you've been good in the store today. You can pick out a candy bar. You can pick out a piece of candy. And suddenly what seemed like a small rack of candy before now seems like it stretches on for miles and miles. And now you have this law, this, you have way too many choices. It's hard to know what to pick. And you start to panic and you get fuzzy. At least this is my experience with candy. You get foggy and fuzzy and you're not really sure. And you know this is a very important life-altering decision what I'm going to pick, and I don't want to pick something terrible like black licorice. Or even worse, dark chocolate. I knew that would get a good response. You either love it or hate it. I don't want to pick something bad. I don't want to pick, some, pick something gross. I, this is a big decision. And to be indecisive, to not be able to make a decision, that's not what we're talking about with Nehemiah. He's the kind of man that takes a while to make a decision, but he's thinking through it. He's really giving it thought. And Nehemiah, he has a legitimate reason to deliberate deliberately. 
He has a reason to carefully and intentionally consider the task at hand. He's doing the work of God, folks. I mean, he's out there doing something important. God's kingdom was going to be affected by his actions. This is bigger than black licorice and candy bars. This is huge. And Nehemiah, in his mind, he's thinking, I don't want to move forward without God's direction. And I'm thankful for the example that we have in Nehemiah here, that when you're going to do something, if you're doing something important, it's worth doing well. It's worth doing the right way. And that's why I want to look at the ways Nehemiah was deliberate in the work for God. Because this is an incredibly important characteristic of people that are tasked with the responsibility of furthering or advancing the kingdom of God is that they're deliberate. They're not impulsive. People that do the work of God effectively make deliberate plans because of the magnitude of the work that they have been asked to accomplish. So how, here's how Nehemiah was deliberate in the work of God. Is, look at verse 11. It says, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And you say, well, what does that mean? Okay, what that means is that he gets to Jerusalem and rather than just, just getting started and jumping in and doing the work right away, he spends another three days to, dis, to discerning what plan that he's going to follow before he informs anybody of the strategy. He doesn't just walk in and start throwing things out there and get started. He gets there and spends three days taking it all in. Because even if he's had six or seven months to think about the plan when he gets to Jerusalem, he's actually never seen the walls before. This is his first time to walk around and take notice and, and survey what is going on and, and see really just how in disarray and how broken down the walls really are. And he's, he's going to take more time before he gets started. And here's where we see again that Nehemiah, he was deliberate in his timing. He's deliberate in his timing. And, and I know that's already been a characteristic that we've talked about, is that, it, is that Nehemiah was always waiting for the right time. And I'm thankful for that as a balance for those of us who at times can be impulsive. He's waiting for the right time. God's work, listen, God's work is important enough that it should be done deliberately and with the right time. And I believe this is true in many ways, and, and, and I'm not going to get into all the applications tonight Necessarily, this is a different kind of message, I think, in that it's more of about mindsets tonight, not so much about personal application. But a, a huge part of being deliberate is the patience to wait. What was Nehemiah waiting on? Well, he's waiting on God's direction. So it's kind of hard to fault a guy for not moving and not getting on board with something and getting started when you realize he's not just waiting because he's bored. He's not just waiting because he's procrastinating. He's waiting because he's trying to find God's mind on what should happen next. He's deliberate. He's intentional. He's not impulsive at all. He's unhurried. He's giving long and careful consideration to the task. And there may not be a better example of a man in the Old Testament or even in the whole Bible potentially that's willing to wait for the right timing like Nehemiah. I mean, he, he waited to talk to the king four months. He waited for the, to, to talk to the king again for four seconds while he prayed. And now he's waiting another three days until he could get started. So he surveys the city. Three days. And you know, he's probably thinking in his mind, well, I've waited all this time already. I'm willing to wait three more days if it means I can get it right. I'm not going to blow it at this point. How silly would it be to rush now? That would be like getting through a whole semester or a year of school and working hard to get good grades and at the very end just being tired of it and packing it in and not taking the final or anything. I mean, that'd be silly. That's doing all the work and, and getting all the work done and all the homework, but only in the end to just kind of say, yeah, I'm tired of this. Now, in, in my experience, it, to be impulsive in a situation when you've already waited this long, it doesn't usually accomplish as much as being deliberate. So what I'm saying is don't rush the important stuff. Be deliberate in the timing. Wait until you know it's time before you start something important. And I, was, I, I noticed or, or kind of discovered the importance again of, of waiting to be sure about something before you just rush. I was on my way here this week to uh, the church and I was turning from our neighborhood onto Arrowhead Parkway, 
And the light turned green, and there was a car in front of me. And when the light turns green, we have a green arrow. Um, this person waited for just a, a maybe one or two seconds. And of course, all it takes is two seconds to get impatient when you're trying to go. Two seconds, and they hadn't gone. And I'm like, I'm, I, I mean, should I honk? I mean, this is a big deal. Two seconds. Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that way. Okay, thank you. Two seconds. And I'm like, come on. And they started to go, but right when they did, this, this truck, um, a construction, I mean, it was, a, it was just a pickup truck, a big pickup truck, four-door four pickup truck, but it blew the red light big time. And if they had just gone without looking like I probably would have, they would have, got, they would have gotten hit or I would have gotten hit. You know what they were waiting on? They, they were waiting to make sure that everything was good before they just jumped in and went. And here I am behind them like, okay, should I honk? Are they going to go? And they were watching. They were doing what I should have been doing. They were, being cons- they were considering all the options. They were looking around. They were making sure that it was safe to go before they just pulled out. And they were being deliberate about driving. You know, I have many more regrets in my life about doing things too quickly than I do about waiting to make sure that I've thought through everything and made adequate plans. It's the way it is. Verse 12, look, he says there, uh, it says, And I rose in the night, I and some few men with me. He says, Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon. So he 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 rises in the night, he takes a few men with him, he hasn't told any of them his plans, and he has one beast, I don't know, I imagine he's riding on a camel or maybe a horse, we know that, Many horses came with him uh, to Jerusalem. But Nehemiah wisely, he viewed the terrain in secret. He surveys the southern end of the city without telling everybody what he's doing. See, Nehemiah was deliberate in his discretion. Meaning, God's work is, sometimes you have to do God's work in secret. In, in other words, uh, it's not, God's work is not always done in the public eye. It's not always about uh, having somebody see what we do or doing what we do to gain attention. Sometimes it's the work done in secret that makes the biggest differences. So many people believe that in leadership that it's lived out in the limelight and that everything a leader does is out in front, but all most people see is that public appearance. But what they fail to realize is in the work of God, much of the real work is done in solitude. Thought is given to it. Planning is given to it. Nehemiah wasn't who he was because of his public appearances. Nehemiah is the man that he was because of the time that he spent in solitude. The time that he spent beside, behind closed doors. And you know what? This is true for us too. Our public life is the outflow of a relationship with God that takes place in secret. And I hope that you're getting this tonight. Uh, it seems pretty quiet in here. You know, our relationship with God is not lived in front of other people. It takes place behind closed doors. But we often, here's what we do, we flip it around. And we put more effort, and we put more energy, and we give more thought to the appearances than we do to the relationship that nobody else is watching. And we flip it around, and we assume that the Christian life or our relationship with God is lived out in front of other people. But no, no, if you read Matthew 6, you see Jesus Christ talking to the Pharisees and he's telling, him, telling them how, how opposite of the right mentality that is. He's saying you don't live out your relationship in front of other people. What takes place behind closed doors when you pray in secret or you give secretly, the things that you do in secret with you and God in solitude, that's what makes you who you are What other people see is just an outflow of your relationship with God behind closed doors. You know, not everything we do for God has to get attention. And we can be that way sometimes. We can be that way where, you know, where we will do what we do because somebody else is watching. And I'm not faulting you for it. I'm just saying that you're a human just like everybody else. And we all have a tendency to do what we do because we're going to be seen of men. But really, what, what other men see 
It should be in just an outflow of a walk with God behind closed doors. And it should be in solitude that we are determining that our walk with God is real, even if it's in secret. That's where the real activity and the real growth takes place. Nehemiah knew that he could not be the leader in public that he needed to be unless he spent the time with just him and God in solitude. Nehemiah was careful. He didn't just share his plans. He was discreet. He didn't just get up there and talk around, you know, kind of just tell everybody, hey, here's what I'm thinking about doing. And I, I, I think this is good. It's wise in how he does this. I, I like collaboration, and I think it's wise to cooperate and, and bounce things off. But sometimes you just have to get alone with God and find out what you're supposed to do before you tell everybody else about it. He didn't just share his plans or get everybody involved up front. He didn't get on Twitter and put out a poll. He didn't say, okay, everybody, tell me, where do you think I should start? No, he got alone with just him and God in solitude. And he, sometimes, folks, and I think we kind of get this, especially with social media and, and how easy it is to interact with each other. I think sometimes we get to the place where we look for everybody else's feedback before we get alone with God and find out what it is he wants us to do. We're so used to the feedback. How often, though, do you just turn everything off and just listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit? No noise. No device. You say, well, I use my device for my, for my Bible. Well, I mean, I understand that, but I think you ought to use a Bible as a Bible. You know, there, I don't, I've never gotten a notification in this that distracted me from what God was trying to tell me to do. Usually the notifications that come through this are from the Holy Spirit, so... That's not a bad notification to get, some, get one from. I mean, so just put the device down, pick up the Bible, and just you and God. When's the last time that happened? Amen. Turn off all the noise. Turn off the phone. Get in a room, just you and God. Turn everything off. And you open your Bible and just pray and seek Him and ask Him, if, especially if you, have a, if you have a decision to make, Make that decision in solitude before you go get feedback from everybody. Maybe pray about it. If you have a prayer request, rather than telling everybody about it, why don't you just pray about it first and give thought to it and ask God to answer that before you ask everybody else to pray about it. God may want to do something in your life, in your heart, just between you and Him, and he doesn't necessarily want everybody else to have feedback or input. He wants you to get alone and seek God by yourself. That's what Nehemiah does for three days. He doesn't Im immediately just kind of enlist all that help. No, he for three days, he wants to find out what God wants him to do about it. That's what he's doing. He's more concerned with hearing from God than involving a committee. He's not turning this into a social matter. He wants to hear from God. And sometimes the most important work is done discreetly. We can be deliberate in our discretion. Verse 13. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley. And here he starts to talk about some different places. He begins a survey trip and he talks about the gate of the valley and he talks about the dragon well and the dung port and he views the walls of Jerusalem which they're broken down, the gates they're ever consumed with fire. And he starts to kind of give us an idea and we don't know for sure where these locations are exactly. The gate of the valley is on the southwest side of the city and if you look, if you think about Jerusalem, kind of I, I view it in, in those days as kind of like the big dipper and and the handle's on the bottom, and it kind of gets a little bit bigger on top. So Nehemiah is starting at the southwest side of the city, and he goes out of the valley of the gate, and he kind of goes around the south side is, is the route that he's taking. And he mentions the gate of the valley, he mentions the dung port, which is on the south side of Jerusalem, and he, he goes around further, uh, and we, we'll get a couple more, but we don't know about all these locations for sure, but the point that Nehemiah is making is that he's been de being deliberate in the details. In other words, he's not rushing through this. He doesn't get on a horse and ride around the city as fast as he can. He gets on a horse or gets on the beast that he's on, the, whatever he's riding, and, and he takes time at each spot. 
And he surveys the wall. He's stopping along the way and he's taking note of the places that need attention. He wants to see as much of it as he can so he can make an informed decision about this. He ends verse 13. He said, this is the reason I'm here. Sure enough, yep, the gates and the walls are all broken down. And he's taking time to inspect each place. Look at verse 14. Then went I on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool. And, and if, if, if uh, historians are correct, he's gone around the southern end of the city. Now he's kind of coming back up on the east side. And he's looking at these places. And it says in verse 14, there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. So obviously, the, things are in real bad disrepair. He's just trying to go around the city, and he doesn't get very far. I mean, it'd be kind of like if he starts over here at, um, at 229 and, I don't know, 26th Street. And he comes down this way and comes along 41st Street, and he ends up here on the, at Eastside Baptist Church. And then uh, he kind of goes back up Veterans Parkway a little bit. And he doesn't get very far because it's just in such bad disrepair. I mean, it, I, from my understanding, the walls of Jerusalem are only just a, two or three miles around on the perimeter. It's not that big. I mean, it's, it's not very large. But here's Nehemiah not getting very far because things are just in such disrepair. But what I think about that is he's stopping at every place. He's not just rushing through this. He's being deliberate in the details. And and I think that's a good lesson for us, especially in the work of God. It deserves for us to be deliberate in the details. He's not concerned with getting it done and making it around the city in one night. He wants to make sure he truly understands the condition. And we can get in such a rush to try to just get everything done or to get something done that we don't do it right. I've done that before just trying to get a job done, and I, I do it real quickly, and I usually regret it. I think about my school days, and I, and I wait till, uh, no, none of you would do this, I know, um, but I procrastinated sometimes, okay? We have some admitting their sins, okay? Confess your faults. So sometimes I would wait too late to get started on something, and then I would try to rush through it and get it done. And I knew I didn't do a very good job. And I would turn it in and get it back. And the teacher could tell that I didn't do a very good job, that I didn't put much time or effort into it. When we rush through something, we never do it as well as if we give it time and thought and energy. And I think about this, if we're talking about the work of God, I think about Bible reading. I don't know if, you, if you, you're this way sometimes, but in my Bible reading, sometimes I'm just so excited to get through it. I'm just reading and reading. I'm like, oh, I got to check it off the list. I got to get through all however many chapters I'm doing that day. And, and, and getting, going so fast through it and trying to rush to get it done, by the end of it, I'm like, I don't even remember what I just read. So bent on rushing through it and checking it off the list that I don't do a good job and I don't retain anything. Nehemiah's not that way. Nehemiah, it would have taken him a couple years to get through his Bible, probably, because he's the kind of guy that's like, I'm going to get everything I can out of this. I'm going to stop and be deliberate and carefully consider everything. Nehemiah had come to Jerusalem basically as an anonymous leader, and and we're not going to read all of this, but he says in verse 16, the rulers knew not whether I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. So here's Nehemiah, and he's the new guy in town. And he's starting to make a plan. He's looking around. He's deliberate in what he's thinking about. He's deliberate in his planning and the details and and being discreet. He's deliberate. He's he's purposely making plans. But he doesn't even tell the the readers and the the leaders and the rulers He's not going around telling the nobles. These guys had already been in Jerusalem. They'd been living there for him to just kind of come in and be like, okay, here's the plan. No, he knew if he's going to sell them on the ideas, if he's going to sell them on the strategy, he better have a real solid plan before he gets started. Because they're not going to just buy into him. They don't even know him. This is important work. That's why he has to be deliberate. That's why he feels the need to be discreet. That's why he knows every detail. This is not some impulsive, low-level, low-risk, last-minute project. This is a key moment. 
in the grand scheme of God's kingdom plan. And Nehemiah knew he better get it right. And he goes to the men, and we're not going to read 17 through 20 again, but he presents the plan and he does it so well that they're just on board. It kind of reminds me of when he went to Artaxerxes and he had this plan and Artaxerxes believes in him so much that he's like, yeah, whatever you need. Well, these men do the same thing and we'll see that next week. But for tonight, I want to just kind of approach this as a principle that I think will be a help to us as a mindset for our church, uh, kind of a church ministry philosophy. And sometimes messages like this, can I tell you, as a pastor, messages like this, I mean, they're not like raw, raw, let's do this. We're not going to flood the altars tonight and have a bunch of response. I can probably guarantee that. But sometimes you have to just stop and preach a mindset. You just have to preach a principle that I think can help a church's ministry philosophy. And that's what I think is important about this tonight. And here's the principle, and we'll apply it as we go. Anything worthy of God is worth being deliberate about. Anything worthy of God is worth being deliberate about. It's kind of like if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Well, if it's for God, we ought to be deliberate about it. God's work is important enough that we should be deliberate on purpose, waiting on the right time, on purpose, being discreet if necessary, on purpose, spending time on the details rather than just kind of throwing something out there. And you might ask, well, why do we have to be deliberate? Can't we just do ministry and enjoy it and see what happens? Well, I think we can. can. There are times when something unplanned is great. I love being impulsive on a day off. I love being impulsive sometimes when when my family and I might have an evening together, whatever sounds fun in the moment, you just kind of do it. That's good. That's healthy. That's good for a family to operate that way sometimes. Sometimes I'll just walk in the door, I'll come home, and I'll just announce to the kids, okay, everybody, get ready, we're going somewhere. I don't even tell them where. First thing is, uh, where are we going? How should I dress? It's like I said, don't worry about it. Just get dressed. What does that matter? We're just going somewhere. Well, for girls, I guess it matters. I didn't know. Second thing you hear is, I don't have anything to wear and crying and tears and panic. Here, I'm just trying to be a good dad. Let's just go have fun. And now everybody in the house is crying. <laughs> Third thing that comes is an hour later, me saying, hey, are, how are we not ready to leave yet? <laughs> That's life with a bunch of girls. You know, it's fun to be impulsive. I like to be impulsive. When we go on vacation, sometimes we leave certain days just unplanned, and I love doing things that way. I, but I also, though, I want to give a balance to it. See, in the important things, it doesn't always work well. In other words, I can do that on vacation and not plan a day uh, out and just kind of do whatever happens, but I don't treat my finances like that. Some people treat their finances like that, but most people can't. See, you need a budget. And you need some self-control because impulsive people that aren't deliberate with their finances find themselves in trouble. And we see the wisdom in not just kind of flying by the seat of our pants in the important areas like finances or raising children or protecting your home or maintaining a vehicle or being diligent at work or doing your schoolwork or maintaining your health and exercising in those areas that, you know, we're not just like, yeah, live off the cuff, don't give it much thought. Those are important areas. Those are too important to risk. Now, if you've got a vacation or days off or recreation or entertainment and times to play, in those areas, a little impulsiveness is fine. Their effect is not as monumental. But in the important things, we should do them on purpose. But let me ask, in which category would we place God's work? See, over here you have the peripheral and you have the unimportant. I mean, family days and vacation, that is important, but it's still, it's peripheral. It's not as important what it looks like as much as it is that you take them. Men, by the way, take a day off and spend time with your families. I mean, to be imbalanced as a workaholic is just as bad as being imbalanced as somebody that doesn't like to work. So be, ba- be, be balanced and Give some time to your family. I'm not saying at all that it's unimportant, but in which category are we going to throw God's work? Is it the peripheral? Is it the unimportant? Is it the incidental? Or would we say, no, the work of God is significant? It's important. 
It's weighty. It's substantial. Is it important enough to be deliberate about? Or not significant enough to give much thought to? Well, I think that we know the answer to that. There's no more important work, eternal work, than the work of a local church. The work of God. And Nehemiah gives us a blueprint that that work this important deserves us being deliberate. To give some thought and planning to. Here's a couple more reasons to be deliberate. Number one, God is deliberate. God does things with a plan. And I'm going to start way back when in, in creation. It seems like he sure had a plan. And just a few chapters later, when Adam and Eve made that terrible decision in the garden, he already had a plan because there was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He already had a plan. Then you fast forward a, a few hundred years to the, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and you go through and you read in uh, Leviticus and and some of the Old Testament law books about how detailed God was about what he wanted in the tabernacle and what he wanted it to look like and how big he wanted it to be and what colors there needed to be. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of deliberation. Very deliberate. Go to the temple and see how he had everything measured out. He wanted it this size, this length, this width, this height. He wanted this material. He was, he's a deliberate God. A building that represents God being constructed off the cuff? I don't think so. This didn't just happen. This didn't happen. A few guys show up one day and they're like, all right, what do we, what do we want to do here? Now, you were there. You went through the process. I know this wasn't just off the cuff. This took planning because it represents God. It's important. God is deliberate, so anything worthy of God is worth being deliberate about. If we represent God, so first, be deliberate because God is deliberate. But second, and here's where the, most of the application is, and then we'll start wrapping this up. If we represent God, then we should be deliberate. If God is deliberate and he has a group of people on this planet right now meant to represent him, that's us. And if he's a deliberate God, we should be deliberate. That's why we should strive for excellence in our service to God. Whether it's in music or in teaching a class or in being a door greeter out here or or following the, the church policies, being deliberate not only makes us more effective in ministry, but it helps us to better represent a deliberate God to those people that come in. We should be deliberate in how this building represents God. I know this, this starts to get to the fine details, but you know, I was thinking, about if there's a piece of trash on the floor, that makes a statement about how we view God. You say, oh, come on. Now you're getting into the really small details. Go read Leviticus. Read God's desire for the tabernacle and tell me how detailed he didn't want to be. See, we should take such ownership in our desire to represent God here that we won't walk past something if it shouldn't be in the hallway. We're going to stop and we're going to pick it up. You know, this morning I, there was mud on the sidewalk when I got here. I was the first one here this morning and there was some work done this week. And so I went out and I swept it up. And when I got here and I was thinking, I wonder how many men of our church would notice that mud and take the initiative to clean it up, whether or not they were asked to. And I'm not doubting, I think there's a good number of men that would, but my question is not about everybody else, my question is, would you have noticed it? Would that have been something, men of Eastside Baptist Church, that you're walking in, and you see, well, there's mud on the sidewalk, I don't know where it came from, and I'm not going to say, well, who did this? That's the way it works at our house. You know, there's a, there's a box of cereal that gets spilled all over the floor. And we could spend a few hours, like in a courtroom trial, to figure out who did this. Well, in the end, you, you stop worrying about who did it and just think, well, if it's a mess and it needs to get cleaned up, I'm going to be the one that does it. Man, that's a good, and ladies, but men especially, I'm going to challenge you tonight. That's a good approach to take to God's house. Stop worrying about who did it or, or who left it or who broke it or who dropped it 
And let's just be men that take such ownership in our church because this building represents God that even if nobody asks us, I'm going to be the one, the first one out there with the broom, and I'm going to clean it up. Because on Sunday morning, we're going to have who knows how many guests roll into this parking lot. And as they roll in, and as they look around, and they see uh, our building, and they see how beautiful it is, but then they look down, and they see some mud on the sidewalk, and they're thinking, well, I I don't know if they're this judgmental or not. Don't be judgy, as my kids would say. But they might say, well, they've got a nice building, but they obviously must not really care all that much because nobody bothered to clean the mud off the sidewalk. Every little thing makes a statement about our God to people coming in here. And we might think, well, it's not that big of a deal. But my pastor, my former pastor used to say this. He would say it all the time. Everything means something. Everything means something. So a piece of paper on the floor that nobody has picked up, if it means something, what does it mean? Well, if I really think about it, if there's a piece of trash on the floor and it's been passed by, I don't know, 30 or 40 members of Eastside Baptist Church, then what I would have to assume is that the house of God isn't that important. And I'm not saying I've seen that happen. That's not it at all. What I'm trying to do is to challenge us to think in this principle that says if God is deliberate then we as his people ought to be deliberate too. We ought to represent him as accurately as we possibly can. And whether it's, not, whether it's something on the floor or something that we're, we've been tasked to do or we're supposed to serve in this way or not, we ought to be passionate, so passionate about representing our deliberate God that we do things on purpose, including how we take care of God's house, but not just how we take care of God's house. So how do we create that mindset? Well, when I drive into the, onto the property, here's what I ask myself. I very consciously ask, what would a guest think of that grass that's in the middle of the road right there? What would a guest think about that, the leaves that are piled up in the corner over there? What would a guest think about the mud on the sidewalk? What would the guest think about the condition of the concrete out front? Nobody wants to jump on that one. What would a guest think? You say, well, we shouldn't be men-pleasers. No, it's not about being a man-pleaser. I'm not trying to uh, please visitors or guests, but it's because the condition of this building represents God to our community. So the condition of this building makes a statement to a visitor coming onto our property about how we view our God. So it's not just a matter of well, we're trying to please everybody and make the visitors happy. No, I want them to know that I, we have such a high view of God that we're not, not a man in this room would walk, pile, uh, walk past a pile of mud on the sidewalk without picking it up and make sure that it gets taken care of because this building represents our God. Not only should we notice it, we should be careful not to be the ones contributing to that. We shouldn't be uh, leaving stuff around or leaving such and stuff away that such a way that somebody else has to come and clean. I, these are good mindsets. Good, and, and what's even better about it is nobody's in trouble. I'm just saying in general, this is the way we ought to think about this church building. Not a man in this room should walk by something that's out of place and think, well, somebody else can get that. Or who did that? Well, make sure you're not contributing to someone else having to come in and represent being deliberate. Everything means something. Trash on the floor means something. Mud in the parking lot. Fingerprints on the doors. It means something. Not following church policies. It means something. On the flip side, a clean building also means something. When people walk in and they look at this building, that means something. It says something to them. God's people being here on time every time, it means something. A good choir special, it means something. A good song like we heard tonight, it means something. Being prepared for your special or teaching your class. It says something. Everything means something. The view that everything means something is almost oppressive sometimes. It can be. It can be almost too hard to carry out. And many people think because it's so difficult to be consistent with it that it shouldn't be an expectation. But the question, here, here it is. The question is not, well, is it, is it difficult? No, the question is, is the work of God worth it? Is it worth waiting for the time, the right time? Is it worth waiting for God's direction? Is it worth getting really down to the details? 
Because remember, anything worthy of God is worth being deliberate over. And honestly, I can't even tell you how this looks like. I just chose a few illustrations. I can't tell you what it looks like every time. I just know this. I want to approach everything I do for God like it's worth the very best I can do. And if I'm following the pattern of how God expected the work of his house to be done, and I'm following the example of the way God's men did the work on God's house, then my only conclusion is this. For me to do the best I can in God's work, I have to be deliberate. There will be times where we do something off the cuff, and we just allow things to happen in some kind of organic way, and that's fine. We'll still make an order of service, and we'll follow it, and I've got them up here. You know, we have an order of service, and, and we'll follow it, and we want to keep to it as much as we can. But I'm not saying we're going to plan the Holy, Holy Spirit out of the service. That's not the point. There will be times where sometimes we discard this plan, and we do something different. But even in those times, they'll be on purpose. They'll be done deliberately. Not because we weren't prepared, or not because we couldn't think of something else to do, but because we want the Lord to lead us in everything, especially in our services. So even in going off script, we're being deliberate about it. I don't know if that makes sense. It did in my mind before I said it. So in the end, it's my desire to follow the pattern laid forth in God's word about the approach to God's work. Nehemiah certainly viewed the work of God as being worthy of being deliberate, and so should we. Because anything worth doing for the Lord is worth doing, being deliberate about. Is he worth the extra time? Is he worth the extra planning and the extra consideration? Is he worth being unhurried about and spending time in solitude maybe and seeking his direction about? Is is he worth being overly detailed and subscribing to the ideal that everything means something? Well, it's harder, but yes, he's worth it. God's work is worthy of us being deliberate. And my prayer is that Eastside Baptist Church is a deliberate church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.